Shit. Motherfucker. God damn it. Okay, well, we have our cold open. Welcome to Two Psychologists for Beers. I'm Yoel Enbar. With me here, as always, is my friend and co-host, Mickey Inslecht. How you doing, Mickey? I'm doing pretty well. It's uh, full-on summer, uh, and I am excited uh, for this show because uh, we've got a repeat guest, none other than Paul Bloom. Uh, Paul was our first guest, and uh, all our listeners know Paul uh, already, but it occurred to me, UL, that uh, the first time we had Paul on as our first guest, we literally had, I don't think we had any notes. We barely prepared. Um, I, I still think the show was Whereas good. Whereas now we are like meticulously prepared. Absolutely. At least one of us. <laughs> At least one of us. Uh, and in this show, one out of three, if guaranteed. Uh, but it occurred to me that I didn't properly introduce Paul. So I'm going to do a more proper, uh, correct introduction of Paul. So uh, Paul Bloom is the uh, Brooks and Suzanne Reagan Professor of Psychology at Yale University. Uh, he got his PhD uh, from MIT, and he's written numerous books. Um, I think uh, the one that resonates most with me is Against Empathy, The Case for Rational Compassion. Uh, he's currently writing uh, a book called uh, The Pleasures of Suffering. And uh, many of our listeners will know him from uh, The Very Bad Wizards, uh, also from his writings in The New York Times, The Guardian, The New Yorker, Vandica Muthley, uh, etc. So, Paul, uh, I hope you are you know, uh, pleased with the more formal introduction. No, that was great. And thank you for having me back. You guys, uh, when I, I came to you, this ragtag duo, you know, just didn't really know anything. It was horrible. And now you're an international sensation. It's just amazing. <laughs> international. I mean, uh, yeah, Canada and the U.S. Part, no, parts we... of Mexico. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. <laughs> Yeah, I'm surprised you came back after the first time. Oh, no. It was just like, I dined out on the story of you two klutzes. But now, now, what, what episode is this going to be? What number? 25, I believe. That was 26. 25 or 26. Yeah. Uh, 26, you're right. You are yeah. right. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. 26. That seems hard to believe. Yeah, it was basically about a year ago uh, that you were here. And I feel, uh, I feel my life has changed immeasurably. Oh, I Glad I'm very glad that <laughs> yes. I don't know how to respond to that. <laughs> <laughs> right. Like, what do you say? Sorry, condolences. Congrats. Yeah, I don't know. It's well, tough. Yeah. Well, ups and downs. Ups and downs, gutters and strikes. That's true. Um, but the one constant of the show, you know, uh con you know, the content, the quality varies, I I agree. Uh with an upward trajectory, but I think one constant is that we drink beer. Sometimes. Almost always. <laughs> Almost always. Um, so today, uh, I had the pleasure of uh, selecting some beer for us, mostly because when you all select, you just get the bottom basement beer. Just whatever's cheapest. Whatever's on sale <laughs> at the LCBO. <laughs> That's right. No matter how terrible. <laughs> Uh, so uh, I was driving uh, my son to soccer uh, a couple weeks ago, and I noticed that on my way to uh, this one field uh, on Wallace Street in Toronto, there is a small little brewery called Halo Brewers. And I recall with some, um, with some uh, pleasure, uh, one time I had one of their beers at a, at a really good uh, uh, bar downtown. So I just went in, I picked up uh, six beer for us. And the first one we are drinking is called Shapeshifter. It's a sour IPA. Uh, it's 6.5%. So I think uh, by the second half of the show, we'll be feeling cozy, comfortable. Nice and toasty. Yeah. Uh, I feel it will be smoother than we are now. Uh, well, I mean, we're already very smooth. So, you know, it's going to asymptote at some point. <laughs> right. The key is, you know, we have, we've got to like end right, right, you know, before the asymptote. Uh, sure. Or I would say it is U-shaped eventually, obviously. Yes. Get the oh, I meant, yes, I meant we got to stop before the U-shape. Right. right. The, yes. Before the right. Yeah, that's that, true. Yes. So, uh, well, let's sell a drink. Cheers. Um, Cheers. Cheers. And have a live guest as hey. well. Live guests. Woo. That is properly sour. That is quite sour. Yeah, it's good. Yeah. I think it's uh, dry hopped. I'm not sure what that means, but it sounds fancy. Yeah, it does. I have no idea what it is. <laughs> I'm not sure what that means either. <laughs> You're the beer expert, man. <laughs> I don't want to look it up. Fair enough. Okay, so uh, we have two topics that we want to cover today, right? Um, so we're going to do parenting and we're going to do perversity? Yes, we got uh, two Ps today. So I'm obviously, I'm not a parent. 
Um, one thing that I've learned from watching you is that you can get yourself into quite a bit of hot water by suggesting that your children aren't always perfect little angels who add joy to your life on every day that they exist. Yes, Isn't that that, right? Yeah, that's right. I guess that is how the idea of having an episode on parenting started. Uh, so let me try to remember how this happened. So I was in Bali for my sabbatical and um, one of my children, so I've got two children, uh, uh, one's a 10-year-old uh, son, uh, eight-year-old daughter. Um, and I think it was in, you know, afternoon and I was probably surfing Twitter or doing some work of, of, of some kind or other. And one of my children, I think my daughter, um, came up to me with some art that she had created, some drawing or maybe a poem. I said that she either drew or she wrote. And it was, you know, uh, it was mediocre. I'm not going to lie. It was, it was. Was it mediocre for a, like an eight-year-old or mediocre just, you know, generally? I mean, okay, it's definitely mediocre for an adult. If an adult gave you this piece of work, you'd be like, there's something clearly not right with you. Um, you know, you can't draw. I mean, people don't look this way. <laughs> right. They're, they're three-dimensional. So get with it. Um, no, but even for an eight-year-old, you know, it, you know, there's a range of, of quality that she submits. And, you know, it was one of, one, wasn't one of her better works. Oh, even for her, it was not her strongest work. Even for her. Got it. But even still, I would say, you know, she's got many talents. I'm not sure art uh, is one of them. Um, so anyways, I just had the thought. I'm like, oh, how lovely. You know, it's so beautiful. You know, encourage her. It was great. Um, you know, go ahead. Essentially, like, saying everything to, like, with the underlying message being, leave me alone. Um, and, and then one point, I'm like, you know, at what point does that stop? At what point does it, like, do you stop pretending to admire and enjoy your children's art, your children's work, when it's not actually that good. Um, so I just kind of, it was tongue in cheek question I, I posed on, on, on Twitter. Like, you know, at what point do we stop pretending to like your kids stuff? And oh my God, the, the, the responses were like, uh, I mean, some were kind of, they, they got that I was joking. Um, and some were like, well, you know, whatever they do at every age, it's just beautiful. And I just love and adore everything they do. And like, mostly it was kind of criticizing me for, having a realistic assessment of my child's art. Um, and I got some blowback for it, but it was kind of humorous blowback. It was kind of blowback that I didn't care about because I was totally joking. Um, so then we had the idea of, hey, wouldn't it be fun to like just talk about parenting and uh, the pros and cons? Um, and I think that, that uh, to kind of um, make our discussion, to center our discussion a bit, we wanted to ask the question, pose the question about uh, parenting and happiness. Um, so does being a parent uh, increase your life satisfaction? Does it decrease? Does it have no impact whatsoever? Um, and it seems like the, 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 the research is mixed and it depends on who you ask and when you ask it and how you ask the question. Um, Can we go back for one second? Because Paul, you have older children, don't you? I do. I have two sons. Right. So when did you, uh, stop pretending that everything they did was great? Um, I haven't yet reached that point, but, but I'm unlike, uh, unlike Mickey's kids, my kids really produce great products. Um, <laughs> So just every time it's better than the last so, time. So in yeah, other words, Paul, you're saying that you would have been one like the you you'd have been one in the pylon. Like fuck this, Mickey. He's just a creep. I no, mean, no, you you know everybody has different kids. <laughs> Look, um, so the, the honest answer is you always. I, I think if you have a good relationship with your kids, you always see them different from everybody else. And there's two parts of that. One thing is we tend to overrate our kids in general. Think you know I see these people in restaurants and playgrounds and so on with real ugly rotten kids but they don't think the kids are ugly and rotten they honestly don't they think the kids are beautiful and you know and so there's that and then there's what mickey was talking about which is the presentation of the kids which is i think i think if you have a good relationship with your kids it's like it's a very different relationship than you'd have with a friend and it involves i think you're going to be their champion and so i don't think that i i speaking seriously i don't think the stage of of um this the stage where you overvalue to them their work has ever ends. I once told my my younger son, who's both my kids are very smart and kind of wise ass intelligence that that and as he was a young age, and I said, you know, you're like this great kid. I tell him he does. I'm so proud of you. And he looks at me and he says, yeah, but you're just saying that because I'm your kid. So you tend to over you know overrate me. And I said, no, no, no. But you really are special. He says, yeah, but dad, you don't understand. Of course, I know you think that. But you would think that even if I was like a real screw up, he's like nine. He's telling me this, and I said, "Oh, fine, fine." But but uh, <laughs> but but in, in some ways, it's difficult. It's difficult to recognize the illusion in yourself. Yeah, that is true. So, um, 
so the other impetus I think for you know for this uh, this conversation um, is uh, and it's uh, it's very different for me right now. Um, so I have mentioned my kids are ten and eight, and I absolutely adore them now. I I, I truly truly adore spending time with them. Um, they're so much fun. They're so interesting. They 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 get me out and do different things I I, I normally wouldn't do. Um, and so you know I like them. They like me. They like us. And it's just this nice period. And I know that's not going to last forever because they're going to be teenagers soon, and and they'll be less interested in spending time with me. Um, so it's it's wonderful now, and I'm uh, I'm a, parenting for me is is you know 100 positive right now. Uh, but it was not always that case for me, um, and I would say it took me a good four years to really uh, acclimate to being a parent, um, and. You know, when people would ask me, you know, when I was, you know, I used to call it, you know, being in the shit or the jungle, right? Those first four years, um, you know, not sleeping, uh, you know, your life just changes so dramatically. Um, and as prepared as I thought I was, I was not prepared. I was just not ready for how, how much my life changed and also critically how, um, how much my, my relationship changed. Um, and there was lots of points of conflict with my wife. Um, you know, it turns out that, you know, of course, when you have a relationship for a long time, you negotiate these roles and kids come into the mix and all of a sudden there are all these new responsibilities, new roles that be, need to be negotiated. And of course, like thousands and thousands of decision points, um, about, you know, eating, sleeping, uh, safety, health, uh, and just so many points of conflict. And, and I think for, for us, um, it was not an easy transition for me, especially. It took me a really, really long time. And when I go to conferences, uh, I remember this one moment specifically. Um, a friend of mine, I'm not a close friend, but a friend nonetheless, asked me, uh, oh, you're a new dad. How's it going? Uh, and I was honest. I actually answered honestly. And I said, well, you know, I, I would like to describe myself as an ambivalent parent. So, yes, there are moments of real joy and pleasure. Uh, but there are also moments where I pull my hair out and, and, and ask myself, what the fuck did I do? And he looked at me and was like, oh, you're, you're clearly doing this wrong. There's something wrong with you. Um, and I was, I was taken aback by it. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, he didn't say there's something wrong with you, but he, he did say, like, you're doing, you're doing something wrong. Um, or you're not you know, appreciating certain things. And it was just like, I realized then, actually, there's only one answer to that question. Like in society, there's only one acceptable answer. It is amazing and it changed my life for the better. That's the only acceptable answer. Um, and, and then I started looking up the research and I was actually heartened by some of the research say, suggesting, no, it actually is really hard. Uh, and there's some research suggesting that maybe it even uh, leads to a decrease in happiness, leads to a decrease in marital satisfaction. So it kind of made me feel, oh, okay, I'm not so weird. So anyway, so that was the impetus. Uh, and we thought we'd kind of dig into the, to the research and see what, uh, see what it reveals. So my reading literature is the same as yours. I mean, Dan Gilbert uh, always gets into trouble by saying children make you less happy. And there's some, the, the evidence isn't quite clear. And, and I think that the impact of kids is, the negative impact is worse in countries where there's not much financial support for parents. But on the face of it, I think probably kids, particularly young kids, under any normal sense of happiness, make you less happy. You are sleep deprived. You are anxious. It it is um, devastating for for your relationship. It is expensive. It is time consuming. Um, often you're concerned. There there's a lot of negatives, and I think on balance, day to day, moment to moment, um, it makes your life worse. But I think the conclusion for, from that, since I think most people who have had kids say it was meaningful and important, is maybe happiness isn't what we're supposed to be striving for. And I think that there's a case to be made that it drops your happiness, but it adds something else, some sort of meaning or satisfaction or flourishing. And so it could be an interesting case study, sort of philosophical case study for for a demonstration for why happiness isn't actually what we should be striving for. That, that is interesting. Um, I, I wanted to add one kind of little bit of uh, flavor to, to one thing you mentioned. Um, I saw that on Twitter a few months ago. Um, it was Julia Rohrer, who's uh, we've mentioned her a few times in the podcast, a graduate student in Germany, who's uh, just amazing, and I really uh, a big fan of hers. And she tweeted out something. Uh, someone ran some descriptive research uh, examining the impact of of having children on sleep of parents, and whether it be your first child, second child, third child. And oh my God, it's it it is a true trauma. Um, so I mean, there's lots of you know uh, interesting uh, you know. Uh, 
kind of data points here. But the one that kind of struck struck me was sleep does not recover even six years after um, having children. Um, so you know, they looked at, you know, what, what uh, uh, parents, uh, you know, baseline uh, amount of sleep, quality of sleep was like. You see this massive decline within the, in the first year, and it peaks or as the natter at, at three months, especially for moms. Um, and it does recover uh, over time, but even six years later, it did not fully recover. Again, quality and uh, a number of hours. Um, and we know that sleep is, you know, is, is essential. For, I mean, it's really critical for, for, for well-being, happiness, health. So it's no wonder that it would have this negative impact. And also everybody in this room is either a father or a potential father. I think all of this is worse for mothers. There's some evidence that the happiness hit is, is worse for mothers. And plainly, particularly if you're breastfeeding, the sleep deprivation um, is worse for mothers. Um, and then the societal expectations. I mean, um, when our kids were young, uh, you know, their, their mother is subject to scrutiny uh, as to what kind of parent she was. Well, if I would, like, put a kid in a stroller and, and you know, walk around the block, as long as I wasn't actively raping the child, people would think I'm, like, freaking father of the year. Just collecting high fives from everybody. I got, I got complimented just for, for existing. I mean, you know. Um, oh my God, totally. I have this distinct memory of it's a, my fr a friend of mine, another dad with a kid the same age. And we had, we didn't have our kids in a stroller, but we had them in one of these baby Bjorns kind of carry thing. And like people were literally stopping us on the street. This is so wonderful. This is amazing. But if we were two and, women. And, and by people, you mean women? Uh, women. You mean, you mean young, attractive women? Uh, well, actually, was actually, from recollection, mostly older women who were coming up to us and, and, and just congratulating us. This is so wonderful that you're doing this. And I'm like, yeah, I felt good. But at the moment, I'm like, you know, my wife wouldn't get this. No. Um, no, she'd be told she's doing something wrong. Um, and, you know, um, and I, in some way, I mean, in some way it reflects, I think it, it, it reflects how the world is much easier for men. On the other hand, it also reflects a stereotype that, that men are just, you know, terrible parents and you can't expect anything from them. Yeah, that's right. So the bar is so low, even, even holding yeah, your even, child. Even us, we get praise. <laughs> yeah. Um, so I also want to go back to another thing you mentioned about this kind of, so uh, I think you're referencing a paper. I got to pull it up. Uh, uh, and tell me what you think of this this uh, this paper, you Alex. I know you 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 read it as well. So um, I think the, the the common wisdom for a while, at least, is that okay, pa uh, parenting leads to a decrease in happiness. Uh, there's also, uh, I think, pretty strong, robust evidence from um, meta analysis, and despite what I said about meta analysis, is that at least in this regard, it seems like the best evidence for this one question, which is it does seem to Im negatively impact marital satisfaction. Um, although maybe that effect size is larger, uh, given when there was no bias corrections in it. Um, but so it seemed like that was the accepted wisdom. It decreases happiness. Uh, but in, uh, what year was it? In 2013, a paper by the title, In Defense of Parenthood, Children Are Associated with More Joy Than Misery. And I'll name the, the, the authors here. Uh, Catherine Nelson, Kostadin Kushlev, Tammy English, Liz Dunn, and so uh, Sonia Lubomirsky. Um, they suggested uh, maybe not, not so quick. Uh, that if anything, uh, if you measured it correctly and asked the correct question, um, it looks like there might be a slight plus for uh, for being a parent. At least for fathers. Yes, at least for fathers, and especially for uh, for people who are married and have children, as opposed to unmarried and having children, and especially for those I think who are older. Um, and they had three studies uh, where they find essentially this the same kind of overall pattern, and they also find especially this boost in what you you know what you said uh, about meaning. So they're slightly happier, and they're and they're finding their life a bit more meaningful, um, or at least they say they're thinking about meaning. Whether that actually means their their life is more meaningful or not, I'm not sure, but they're thinking about meaning and purpose a bit more. Um, so what do you think of that paper, Ewell? Uh, so I read the method sections pretty closely. I may have been missing something, but it looks like. In the first two studies, they were comparing people with children to everybody else. And that seems problematic, right? Because everybody else includes maybe people who didn't get married because they're miserable and dislikable, right? So what I want to know is if you match somebody who's married, has certain demographics, doesn't have kids with their equivalent who does, who is happier? And there it seemed like much more equivocal uh, where if they compare just married people with kids to just married people without kids, there's not a happiness difference. So at least it's not that children make you less happy in their data. 
Um, and then the last study was this uh, day reconstruction method, right, where you ask people, what were you doing? Um, how happy were you while you were doing it? And there they found that people were happier and experienced more meaning while they were with their kids. Now, that's in conflict with some data that I actually teach in my intro social psych class. It shows the exact opposite. From Daniel Kahneman. Yeah, exactly. So, and I haven't dug into it enough to see what the difference is there. And maybe the age of the child has something to do with it. The DRM, I don't know whether Kahneman was using experience sampling or the uh, reconstruction method. The Obviously. reconstruction method. He was. He was. Yeah. He was. Right. So, I mean, there's recall biases in either case, I suppose. Um, so I'm not quite sure what to make of this. It seems to me like you've got a big literature that says this is hedonically negative. And then you got this one paper saying the opposite. And I kind of tend to trust the big literature over the one paper. So when people are deciding to have kids, is this something that they're thinking about? Did you guys think about your expected future happiness if you had kids or not when you were making this decision? No, I just had kids because, you know, figured might as well. I figured I'd have people to play with. <laughs> I was getting into video games and I couldn't, you know, I figured my kids, and actually my kids did grow up and they played video games for a short period and then they became so good that it, that it became unbearable to play with them. That was my main motivation. <laughs> so you wanted, so hold on, I want to make sure I summarize this correctly. Just tell me if I'm inaccurate here. You had kids because you wanted video game partners. First person shooters in particular. <laughs> okay. So I, I didn't, you know, but 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 the question is good. So I just want to sort of inject one other thing in this conversation. Um, I have this uh, colleague, Lori Paul, who wrote a wonderful book called Transformative Experience. Somebody actually good to have on the podcast. And and a transformative experience is an experience you have that after you have it, the world changes radically, and what you value changes radically. And her. Um, and her classic example, she had an initial paper called What You Can't Expect When You're Expecting, is having a child. So when you have a child, it's hard to project what it's like to have a child because it's an entirely new experience, but also your priorities will shift. What you value will shift. And, um, and so in some ways, standard decision theory doesn't work well for deciding whether or not to have a child because when you come out from the other side, you'll have different priorities. So, for instance, right now, you, well, you might like to party, say, um, and say, well, I don't want to have a kid because that will get in the way of my partying and my fun. But the thing is, once you have a kid, your idea of fun might be oh, taking a nap or something, or you're, and you won't want to party anymore. So you're, 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 what you value will change, and it makes it very difficult to project the future. Right. Yeah. So I, I read this article that you sent around. Um, so it, it seemed to me, and she did get here eventually, that that's totally true. And what you do in that case is you just say, well, assume I know nothing about my preferences. What do people on average like? Right. Yeah. And, and she got there and she was like, that's a crazy way to make a decision that seems so unintuitive. I don't know. I mean, it doesn't seem that unintuitive to me. Like, I think in lots of cases where I'm like, well, I don't have a strong idea of whether I would like or dislike this experience. I ask around. And I'm like, well, what did you think? Did you like going to Italy? No, I, I, I agree. I, Lori and I had a discussion in Slate magazine, actually, and I raised the same point. Um, but, you know, I, I, I drew an analogy with medication. So I can't simulate or imagine what it would be like to take, you know, Advil versus Tylenol versus something else. I just look at the data. What do people say once they've taken it? How do they do? And I'll do whatever other people say because I'm not in the end so different from other people. So find 100 people who've had a kid and ask them, what did you think? But the problem, there are problems with that. So one problem is that, that once you have a kid, that may bias you in all sorts of ways. Um, you may fall in love with the kid, in essence. And even if your life is miserable, you can't imagine being without the kid. And that will shape what you recommend. And then the second thing is you might become a different kind of person. So everyone who has a kid say, might say, oh, I, I love it. But you may not want to become the kind of person who would love having a kid. Right. It's like, do you want to ask a bunch of addicts whether you should do heroin? Exactly. I mean, and, and her, her analogy actually is becoming a vampire. So you ask all your friends who become a vampire and they say, man, you can't imagine it. But you have, you know, preternatural powers. You drink blood of people. You party all night. Sunlight is horrible. And it's extraordinary. And but you might say, yeah, but I don't want to be the kind of person who likes that. And, and there's the same thing with, with having a kid or not having a kid. Right. I am totally down to become a vampire, by the way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> but I take your point. So, uh, so this discussion, um, 
makes me think, uh, I think quite naturally about cognitive dissonance. And in fact, there's actually a paper written uh, in 2011 by Richard Ibach um, and Stephen Mock. And they make this argument that maybe the reason you become a different person or you value different things is because you have no choice. It's not, you know, your, your life changes. Um, all of a sudden you have remarkably less freedom. Um, you have to make efforts to go out with your partner. Um, and even when you make the efforts, you're like, I'm so bloody tired. I don't want to go out. Um, and then you find yourself changing and then you find yourself happy with those changes. Um, but, and, I mean, you know, I guess it is what it is. You rationalize the situation you're in. Um, but it does put a slightly different spin on this kind of, oh, yeah, okay, maybe you're slightly less happy, but you're, 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 you find this new thing called meaning. It's just, is, is meaning just this way of rationalizing the pain and, and, and discomfort and, and, the, and the real costs, financial and, and psychological, um, of parenting? It's a good question. I don't think it is. I think there's something to wanting a life of difficulty and value. And I think there's something about having a kid that ticks off all the boxes for the sort of long-term projects that, that make us thrive. Um, you know, you think about training for a marathon or writing a book or starting a business and, you know, and, and having a kid has all of those properties and much more. I think to the extent there's such a thing as, as important projects, having a kid is a great example of one. Yeah. I mean, so, you know, I'm here like kind of, uh, bagging on being a parent, but like I said, I think for now, it just something did change for me uh, quite a bit. Like once my youngest was four, um, where they just had you know uh, sufficient independence uh, that they weren't completely helpless, um, and you can interact with them in a, in a more meaningful way. And, and yeah, it, it did really change. And you asked a question earlier, Yoel, about you know why did I, you know why did I decide to have uh, children. For me, it was, for my wife and I, it was a conscious decision. We were like, we'd been uh, married for, I believe it was maybe five years or so. Um, and at one point, I'm like, so is this it? Like, so my, yeah. the rest of my life is just going to be, you know, working on the week and then going to pubs and hanging out with friends and doing various leisure activities. That's it. At, multiply that by like a thousand. And it just felt empty and, um, yeah, devoid of meaning, to use that word again. Um, so I kind of, yeah, I, I, I did it with the expectation that, I mean, I've, I never doubted that I want to have kids, um, but I did, I did it with some intention there. Uh, I, it, it took me a while to get there, but, but, but right now it's, you know, I, I, like, um, in terms of priorities, there's nothing that's more important to me in my life than, than my family. So there's kind of a paradox here, and you might be able to help me out with this, which is that, so like you, I had a kid. I said, this is great. You know, it was difficult, but then I had another kid. And my kids were incredibly special for me. So why didn't why why didn't I use induction and keep on having them? And why didn't you? Yeah. Like since since we know having a kid for whatever reason leads you to think, boy, this is great, greatest thing in my life, blah 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 blah. What made us stop? Uh, well, for me, the first four years were <laughs> were the oh, shit. For, for you, yeah. Okay. Well, <laughs> well, that is a good answer, actually. <laughs> I mean, so I just you know I used to be a, a dude who like. Uh, I needed eight hours of sleep. You know, I would look at the clock and I'm like, oh my God, seven hours, 59 minutes. That's it. My next day is shot. Right. And then having kids, I'd be, I'd be happy if I had four. Um, so, so, so painful. Uh, yes. For me, thinking, thinking of going back to that moment would be, would be so difficult. I am. Um, I actually remember I was telling, um, uh, the mother of, the, of these kids, uh, my ex-wife was telling her that, um, I wish I had, uh, I wish when we, when the kids were young, we had a third kid. And she looked at me and said, "Are you insane? When we had two young kids, you were going bananas. You were you were miserable. You were freaking out all the time." And I and I said, "But the pictures, because we had this wall, and we had pictures of the kids being young, and there we were all smiling and we we're doing. But apparently, it actually was a little bit different. And um and so there was a memory. There, there's huge illusions of memory. I think that go on. Oh, that's Maybe, interesting. And 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 I um." Uh, Maybe, in fact, only between you and everybody else, you and your friend at the conferences, you're being accurate. Mm -hmm. you know? Right. I'm actually like, yeah, thinking about it and being, well, no, this sucks. I mean, th th just the, the, those hard, it's hard work. Oh, um, you know, it's, it's you finally get to sleep and you're so tired and then the kid starts crying. Yeah. 
and you know it's it's it's, it's really interesting we don't kill no more <laughs> that's right well that's why they're so damn cute i mean that must be a mechanism to protect them from uh the rage of a parent but at the same time they're making they're making this signal the baby crying which has evolved to be annoying and irritating and distracting and you wonder whether natural selection is an adaptive way had to had to sort of go through to find a perfect sweet spot between annoying enough to wake people up and get them to take care of the baby, but not so annoying it makes you kill the baby. <laughs> you wonder how many false starts there were through evolutionary history where, where some sort of you know genotypical variant comes in and the baby's going a little bit louder and then they kill that baby and then that doesn't work out and so on. So, so basically... I don't know what I'm getting at. I'm just, I'm just starting, <laughs> starting to, to remember uh, having babies. Yeah, that's right. Uh, that's hilarious. So I, I maybe you would know this. I, I maybe as a developmental psychologist, um, is it the case that uh, parents are especially sensitive to their the cries of their own children? I believe, right? They're especially tuned. I'm not sure. I've I've, I've heard this. I don't know any data on that. Okay. I know um, I know parents are are um, surprisingly resilient to their own kids' poo. So, so when you change the diaper of your kid, right, it, you get used to it, you get habituated, you learn. It's not, so, I never found it that bad, but to change the diaper of another kid would be like disgusting. Oh my God. You you know? Just, just uh, last weekend, I was in the park with some friends and one of my friends has a younger, younger child and he changed him as, as this young boy, uh, like kind of standing up and I'm like, you're doing that here in front of us and we're eating? And I'm like, oh, yeah, right. Just, you know, a few years ago, I was right in there as well. I forgot how, yeah, how disgusting it can be. But it doesn't generalize to the feces of all children. Just, you know. No, no. Um, and, and I think um, I, it's something I've, I've, I've always been interested in disgust, as you have. And I think um, love conquers disgust. Yes. It, trans, it transforms it in some way. Yeah. So uh, as I was reading um, this article you sent um, from Laurie Paul, you know, one kind of obvious implication is having kids is a very dramatic example of an experience that changes you. But there's lots of choices where the outcome might then change who you are. Right. Um, so the vampire example or just something as prosaic as you take a different job, you start dating a different person, you decide to move to a new town. All of those things might change the type of person you're, you are, what your tastes and preferences are, what you like to do, and so on. So it's sort of, if you take that seriously, it sort of says, boy, it's really hard to make any sort of decision using this normative framework of decision theory, right? Because the ground is constantly shifting under your feet, as it were. Yeah, it, it it's kind of a paradox. Um, this guy, I'm, I'm embarrassingly, I'm blanking out on his name, but he wrote a book called uh, Midlife which I, I've been a philosopher at MIT. And he points out a paradox, which is that we tend to obsess over small things. Like I'm looking to buy Bluetooth headphones and, oh, hours and hours on you know, wire cutter and Amazon comparison and everything. I, you know, I lost like a year and a half deciding whether to buy a car, but, but um, which car to get and so on. And enormous focus on the small stuff. But the big choices... Like, you know, having a kid or, or, or dating somebody or whatever, they're often done over, you know, a couple, a couple of bottles of, of, of beer and some, you know, and some pot. Um, and, you know, you, you, make, you make big life changes or you just fall into them. We're always saying, oh, my gosh, I guess I am dating this person. I guess we're living together. And or we have a big fight. And we break up. And, and it seems like the bigger the decision, the less time we spend mulling it over. And maybe there's a logic to that, which is the bigger the decision. The, the, the less, when it comes to choosing headphones, all this work will pay off. When it comes to uh, choosing whether to marry somebody, the sort of Charles Darwin's idea of writing a list of pros and cons and everything is just nonsense. You can't, you, you can't make wise choices that way. Yeah, that feels right. I mean, leaving out some like obvious red flags of, you know, they're an alcoholic or a drug addict or they hit you or whatever cheat on you constantly but like you know within a broad range of just like normal it's just so hard to predict how this is gonna go like how the two of you are gonna change together yep they like yeah forget it you might as well just go for it yeah or not you or know, not maybe. or not <laughs> yeah. and that's and that's a choice too right i i, th I think it's it, it's interesting like talking about this but here's a psychological you can do a study um there's all these mechanisms built in to justify your choices so 
but there aren't mechanisms, I think, to justify your lack of choices. And that puts the person who doesn't have a kid, who stays single, who doesn't move, at a disadvantage. There's nothing for the sort of what um, Dan Gilbert calls the psychological immune system. There's nothing for it to grab onto. You can't, you can't sort of, it's harder to justify nothing. So, you know, you know, I marry somebody and maybe they're, they're, they're a certain way. And I say, this is the, this is, this is my soulmate. This is great. And all clicks. But if I don't marry somebody, it's hard for me to tell a story saying this was a good idea, even if it was a good idea. Yeah. So Tom Gilovich has uh, a paper, I actually a few looking at regrets Yeah. and long-term versus short-term regrets. So in the short-term, people tend to regret more things that they did, right? Because that action is really obvious to you. Oh man, I wish I hadn't parked in that like tow zone and I'm like, <laughs> you know, my car is unfounded. But in the long-term, they regret the stuff they didn't do. Like, I wish I had asked that person out. I wish I had pursued my education more. I wish I had moved for that job opportunity because like you say, this is, there's no, those defenses don't kick in as much, right? And it can sort of torment you like that you just keep thinking about what might have been. And it's interesting because I, I heard the Gilbert stuff, I think it teach an intro site, and I always give it a sort of thing. So therefore go and grab life and do things and everything. But actually, maybe the people who regret what they didn't do are simply in the grips of a cognitive illusion. They just say, there's a, there, there may be a cognitive bias think that acting is going to be better. Than, than inaction. Guys, there's a paper here. Yeah, I, I think this, I, I find this fascinating. This, 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 I mean, this again gets, you know, the, just, the justification processes that eventually, it might take you a while for me, four years, um, to justify the decisions you, you, you have made, but eventually it'll get there, it'll kick in, and you'll be more or less okay. Um, yeah, that's a really fascinating idea. Um, and the things you don't do, um, I know some. I know some people. So I, uh, I, my aunt, and this is you know, end of one anecdote. Um, my aunt, uh, yeah, biggest regret of her life is not having children. Um, so much so, like I, I, I call her my my second mom. Like I, you know, uh, and she treats me like a son. Um, it's, it's such a such an important drive for her, and it just you know, she made some decisions that led a different way. Um, so I guess what we're saying is have kids. No, I think we're <laughs> saying the opposite. I think don't have kids and you'll regret it, but. That may not be rational. Just ignore that feeling of regret and enjoy your child-free life. Yeah. Yeah, but those those, those systems do kick in, right? Yeah, they're illusions. Oh. You're right. Oh, that's they fair are, enough. They, yeah. They, they, they are illusions and they're whatever, but they kick in. And it, it's when you don't do something that you don't have, the, you know, like you said earlier. Right. So have kids and you'll be happy for the wrong reason. <laughs> that's right. Exactly. <laughs> Actionable advice for our listeners. Sometimes I stand. With a pistol in hand, I fire at the grass just to scare you right back. And when you won't run, I'm mad, but I succumb. Let it happen, let it happen, let it happen. And sometimes I go to the edge of my room, my I'll jump just to punish you And if I should float on the taxis below No one will notice No one will know Welcome back. This is the part of the show where I tell you how to contact us. The easiest way is probably on Twitter where we're at Four Beers Pod. You can at mention us. You can DM us. We both check that account. If you're more of an email type of person, our email address is fourbeerspod at gmail.com. That goes to both of us. And finally, our website is fourbeers.fireside.fm where you can listen to our back episodes and drop us a line there as well, if that's more your thing. Uh, finally, I'm supposed to remind you to rate and review us on iTunes, please, if you like the show, because it, I don't know, does something, what does it do? I have no idea. You know, we just say it helps people find us. That's just because other podcasters mean? say that. Yeah. Uh, we have no idea, right? Uh, I'm assumed that, the, that shows that have more ratings and higher ratings will be found more readily 
on iTunes or suggested or yeah right it might suggest them more although I don't know do people discover the show by like randomly browsing around iTunes being like what science podcasts can I listen to <laughs> I doubt it essentially feed our ego is what you're saying yeah we like reviews review us please yeah so we've gotten a few in the past a little bit some uh, mostly good uh, so so we so we enjoy that wait did we get a negative review no no we didn't they, they, they were positive. I, they're, they're, they're all positive. I was begging for one star last time. You were, and I object to that. <laughs> so, uh, Mickey, do you want to say what we're drinking? Yes. So we're still with uh, Halo Brewing, uh, which, you know, that first beer was wonderful. Really happy with it. Um, and uh, so now uh, we actually are drinking, uh, so you all and I are drinking something called Ion Cannon, which is a goes with a strawberry and kiwi. It's uh, a little weak at 4.5%. And... Uh, Paul, I believe you're drinking a magic missile. So ion cannon, magic missile. I I, I feel a theme. Mm -hmm. Very sci-fi. <laughs> Very sci-fi. <laughs> sci-fi is it? Is it? <laughs> That's what we're calling it. That's right. So uh, so what are we doing now? Well, Paul has been thinking about perversity, and he's going to describe to us what that is. I have been increasingly interested in perverse desires and perverse actions. And um, when this comes out, there may, if I'm lucky, be a piece in the New Yorker um, website by me called uh, Perverse Incentives, um, unless my editor kills it, in which case there will not be. Uh, but in any case, I'm interested in um, perverse choices. And these come in all sorts of flavors. They're everything from perverse impulses, like you're, uh, you're standing in front of a subway and you have this, this uncomfortable feeling you want to throw yourself in front of it, in front of the, the oncoming car. you uh, I know people who can't uh, carry a baby onto a balcony or they can't even watch somebody's baby on a balcony. Not because they're going to throw the baby off, but they just can't stop thinking about it. And then there's what I'm uh, maybe a bit more interested in is honest to God, perverse choices. Like um, the classic example is St. Augustine. He's with a bunch of friends and they steal some pears. And he, uh, he was, they weren't hungry. They threw them to the hogs. He says, I did it just because it's wicked. And I think there are all sorts of things we do uh, occasionally, people to differing, differing extents, which are done, which are irrational or wicked or foolish or unexpected. And we do them because they're irrational or foolish or unexpected. And I'm kind of interested in why. So what are some more examples of everyday perversity? Well, um, I think one example of everyday perversity is is fairly common where people hold on to a view even though there's abundant evidence against it. And so you see this in the political arena a lot. So it, it's, it's no great puzzle why, you know, and you guys discussed this in a previous episode, why we have various cognitive illusions, cognitive biases. But sometimes people just hold on to a view it's like such and so is a great politician or so and so is, has no chance at all, even though everybody thinks they do, just because it's different. And maybe just because it's not grounded by the facts. I have attempt I, I am tempted to believe, and there's some social psych literature in favor of this, that sometimes people hold different views just because there's so much evidence against it. And so there's sort of a perverse pleasure in being the guy who believes X when everyone else believes not X. Yeah, I watched an amazing documentary about uh, Flat Earthers. Um, Behind the Curve, I think is what it was called. It's on Netflix, which definitely seems to have that sort of characteristic to it. Like they they are aware that it's crazy, but they enjoy that it's crazy. And they seem to sort of enjoy that it riles people up. Yeah. And, and, and there's some so – I have a theory and I have no evidence for it. It comes from reading existentialists for what goes on. I'd like to figure out some way to test this. Which is, suppose you guys do everything right. You you make the moral choices by what you view as relevant considerations. You're rational. You figure out what the best things to do are that 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 maximize whatever it is you want to maximize. You are reasonable. Your beliefs match the data uh, to the requisite extent, and so on. You might say to yourself one day, "Well, what use am I? What use is my consciousness?" I'm just following the rules and following that 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 the algorithms and doing exactly the right thing, but I'm kind of superfluous in all of that, and so I think there's there's an occasionally healthy impulse to say all of the considerations say do X, I'm going to do Y, and it's I think 
and again, this is sort of more anecdotal, I think it's interesting that this impulse shows up in three times of, of life, the terrible twos, adolescence, and midlife crisis, all times where you're very concerned about asserting your autonomy. And so I think there's some sort of pleasure that, and sometimes there's a pleasure in watching other people do it. One example of this, which again, I, is how people respond to pollsters. Um, so Scott Alexander has what he calls, um, he's this wonderful blogger, uh, he writes Slate Star Codex, and he has what he calls the lizardman, lizard man constant. And this is based on the fact that about 4% of Americans, when asked by uh, somebody phoning them, is America run by lizard-like aliens from outer space? Say, absolutely. Another 7% say they're not sure. And what, what, what Alexandra says is, look, these guys are screwing with the, the pollsters. And whenever you ask somebody a sort of non-normative question, you get this. Um, some proportion of people believe that Obama was Satan, and, um, and about half of those also claim to have voted for Obama. Uh, uh, it's worse for teenagers. Uh, in one study, the majority of teenagers who claimed that they were adopted um, this ruin has ruined many scientific papers who claimed they were adopted were in fact not adopted. And a whopping 98% of teenagers who claimed to have uh, artificial limbs did not. So, you know, so there, there, there's a sort of, they want me to do this. They want me to be honest. I have no reason to lie. And yet I will lie. And and I think, and I think the ugly side of this is, it, it's not hard to think of the ugly side of this. That there's a playful side. Um, you know, when 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 in the UK, remember when they had they wanted to name a, a polar exploration boat, and the majority of people voted for Bodie McBoatface. Yeah, you know, <laughs> what's what's not to like? Yeah, which they really should have gone with. That was a missed opportunity. They would they call it the the, the, the David Attenborough. Right. <sighs> Boring. Boring. So, uh, look, I feel like there's conceptually maybe a distinction that you can make between just being transgressive or trolling, which we understand why that's fun to fuck with people, right? Like, yeah, I'll claim to have an artificial limb. That sounds cool. I mean, it's I, I, I take your point of like, well, really, I mean, you're just like writing down an incorrect answer to a survey, but it's just kind of amusing. Perversity to me is a little bit different in that it's you're doing something that you know is going to make you worse off, right? That you're not going to like just to do it. But let me give a so, and at times it could just be stupid. It could just be stupid and ugly and evil. But but let me give a sort of justification from this based on an analogy. In evolutionary theory, there's this notion, discredited by many, of the hopeful monster. And the idea is that evolution usually works by by you know very subtle changes in phenotypes going up and down the the, the fitness landscape. But a hopeful monster is a case where there's a macro mutation that just jumps a creature to just a totally different space. And mostly they die. But sometimes the claim goes, and even people like Richard Dawkins, very critical of this, have made the argument, that sometimes it flourishes a whole new lineage. And so imagine doing that with your life. Imagine, you know, abandoning your family and running off to, to, to a different part of the world. Um, Say, proposing marriage to somebody you barely know, having kids when you're not prepared to have kids. Perverse actions, because they are not rationally grounded, but they put you in a whole new space and maybe something good will become of it. So, that, yeah, that, 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 that's an interesting idea. So, if we follow that logic a little bit, uh, would you argue that the people who have, or the least happy, who have the least meaning in their life, or, 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 or at least feel the most dissatisfied with their lives, are most likely to engage in perverse acts or to benefit from perverse acts? I would suggest the second. I would think that if things are really going well for you, um, try to avoid perversity. You know, just, just, just do whatever's rational. You're already kind of on the top of a fitness peak. You know, don't screw it up. On the other hand, if your whole life has gone to hell, well, you know, maybe maybe your algorithm for determining the the right thing to do is itself messed up, and you can't correct it. You're using some sort of wrong algorithm. So so do something else. There was an episode of Seinfeld. Your 
your younger listeners may, your older, sorry, your older listeners may remember the show, where <laughs> where um, where George, who is is the show's perennial screw up, decides he's going to go on a quest where he follows, he figures out what he wants to do, he follows his instinct, then does precisely the opposite, and of course it works out very well for him, because because his instincts are terrible, and if your life is going badly, maybe you have terrible instincts. And so, so, so get perverse. Again, nobody should be following our life advice. Yeah, we're like full of life advice in this episode. Terrible advice. <laughs> there we have a, ti- a title for the episode. Oh, that's perfect. <laughs> Terrible advice. Okay, so how I, this is clearly re- related to reactance, right? Um, but it's not the same, is it? So reactance would be someone, you know, typically you think of it with like, you know, parent and child. Um, you know, parent telling a kid to do X, kid does not X. Um, and kind of just responding to their, you know, the, the, the threats to their freedom. Um, so it, it shares some similarity with this. It does. There, there's sort of a, a whole family resemblance structure here, reactance, um, perversity. The philosopher Agnes Callard talks about unruliness. She has an example I lead the article with that sometimes she enjoys or used to. Um, going to country roads and lying on the line right between the, the yellow line in the middle and the cars zoom by her and she looks at the stars and, you know, and she says, this is, this is, you know, silly. This is horrible. But, but she does it because you're not supposed to do it. And, um, and, you know, she distinguishes it from rebellion. She wasn't saying, you know, oh, I want to stick it to the man. It just, it's just, um, so you don't have to be reacting to a person though often often perversity is to it is a public act you could just be doing it to assert to yourself your autonomy but yeah reactance is a good word for it i got the idea from an article i'm talking to a philosopher um and he's on the, the, the renegade philosopher of science paul fireabend and fireabend says now all in, in against method now this turned out i looked at against method this may not be actually an accurate description of what fireabend said which itself would be a good way to start a perverse article but nonetheless um he said, or he purports to say, that, well, everybody thinks it's best to kind of come to the right answer and use accurate methods. But you know what's even better than that, than being right? Being free. And so, so you know, you guys will tell me uh, this is the proper way to do psychology. This is what the data show and everything. But you're bullies. You're bullying me with the truth. You're, you're stomping my autonomy and everything. If I want to do a study with an N equals 11 and take the results home as deeply serious, now, what are you telling me I can't? Now, you're listening to me. You're both making faces at me. <laughs> should be done. There should be a video version. Because in some sense, this is insane. And, and it literally is insane. So, so the, the ultimate example is The Underground Man by Dostoevsky, who has this whole riff on, if I want to believe 2 plus 2 equals 5, who are you to stop me? Well, you know. Dude, it's it's a, in that case, truth should should trump freedom and autonomy. But you feel some of the charms of that, don't you? Oh, that's really interesting. So maybe some some uh, you know, kind of relating it to one of our core themes is the replication crisis. So maybe some of the re- reactance or the resistance, I should say, um, is like people feel like their freedom to do science as they see fit is being constrained, and they're like, "This is a big you know, fuck you. I'm going to do it the way I want." Um, now, of course, you know, I think you all and I would answer is like, well, the yeah, the collective, you might be free, you might be happy, but for all of us, we want to know the truth. That, that's our job. Um, I got an argument with somebody over Twitter. He's talking about his, he's European. He's somebody you know, but I want to out him. But and it was kind of, and, and he said, at his university, if you propose a study with too low a sample size, they won't let you do it. His department has a committee and they stop you from doing it. And I read and said, that's insane. How could they do that? It's outrageous. And he says to me, well, don't you understand that low sample sizes are a waste of time, blah, blah, And my attitude was, you know, you might be right, but who are you to tell me I can't do a crap study? I, if I want to do a crap study and I have the money to, to, to run it and I'm not hurting people, I should be allowed to do a crap study. Um, and similarly, I'll afford you the courtesy of doing your own studies. Maybe I don't like the theory or whatever. And, and... Often I think we see this tension, and it's true. The, with the repli- part of the rebellion against the sort of um, methodological bullies, what do they call them? There's a pejorative term for this. Is, a methodological is, terrorist? Methodological terrorist, right. 
is 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 from you know the the sort of <laughs> the sort of old school freedom fighters. Don't you tell me what to do. And it's not plainly as a social institution. You know there are good methods and bad methods. You want to encourage good methods. And I'm being a bit playful here, but I understand the impulse. I understand it. They, they, you know, we we are we are in Toronto, and of course, when it, you say Toronto, everybody thinks Jordan Peterson. Um, but but Jordan Peterson got started as a public figure with his rebellion against um, against demands to use certain appropriate language towards uh, trans individuals at University of Toronto, and there's a lot to argue about here, but. In some way, one can appreciate the impulse, which leads somebody to say, that's a perfectly reasonable thing to ask, and yet I want to be free to make the choice whether or not to comply. And, and I see that a lot in politics in general, where it is reasonable. There, not everybody who is against, say, seatbelt laws is, is, is an idiot. They might say, I understand that wearing a seatbelt is safer, but I want to reserve the right to make that choice. Yeah, no, the political application is interesting. You know, if you think about when was that Dostoevsky book written in the late 1800s, right? Where And what what I see that as reacting against is this kind of very rigid, deterministic, and kind of hubristic idea of we can figure out what the best system is, what the best way to act is. And once we figure that out, then anything not in line with that system is just a mistake. And that sort of, I would say, ran aground in the middle of the 1900s where, okay, where that ends up is like fascism and, and Stalinism, right? And I, I think it's healthy to be like a little bit skeptical of people who are like, I have the perfect solution. And if you want to do something else, there is something wrong with you, sir, right? I, so I, I agree with you, well, but I just want to say that what you just described could be is a perfect description of what's happening right now in the replication crisis. I, that was my point. Methods reformers are literal Nazis. <laughs> I would think they're more like Stalinists. Yeah, that's right. You're, you should watch what you're saying because they will ship you off to the gulags. You will not like it. No, I mean, obviously we're, we're, we're playing around here. But essentially what you said is, listen, here we figured it out. This is the right way of doing things. Um, you know, we know now that, you know, if you follow this recipe to the T, you're doing good science. If you deviate from this at all, forget about it. Yeah. I mean, if I'm being serious, I would say, look, we're figuring this stuff out. And the way we figure it out is by consensus, by arguing about stuff. It's not like anybody's handing down the perfect answer. Or there's a lot of disagreement about different aspects of this. So in that sense, it's different from saying, hey, I figured out the one true way. And, and there's something just going back to something which Mickey said, you know, look on social media like Twitter. There's a lot of people um, on the left, progressives, who say, this is how you should talk and this is how you should act. And it's not even necessarily they're mistaken. These are these might be be good, thoughtful, compassionate bits of advice. But it should be to nobody's surprise that a lot of people respond to this with somewhat juvenile, uh, uh, offensive comments because they know people don't like being told what to do. This is in some way I, I talk about this bit in an article. I think a, a, a way to understand a reaction against the nudge movement by developed by Cass Sunstein and Richard Thaler, where the idea of nudge, I think, makes sense, which is, you know, you just, there are all sorts of choices in the world, and you try to design the choices made in ways that are in people's best interest. When you tell people this, they say, well, I don't want you to do that. I don't like the idea of being controlled even for my own good. And I think Cass Sunstein in particular has a series of books arguing this is not, this is not a good response. Nudges make sense. But I think we miss a lot if we don't understand, if we don't appreciate the perverse impulse. So, okay, so maybe so I think we're uh, triangulating or approaching maybe one other hypothesis here, and that is that um, this perverse impulse is something that uh, not guarantees, but pushes towards freedom, right? So when, when you feel your freedom is challenged or threatened, that's when the perverse impulse emerges. It's something, it, it's a reaction to, uh, yeah, to feeling constrained. Yeah. I mean, you see this, this is a product of a million cartoons and several TV shows. You're sat there and there's a big red button saying, don't push this button. And it just strikes me that psychology 
is incomplete if it doesn't include the tremendous impulse we have to push that button. I've been kind of interested in forum search patterns. <laughs> that's a good so, yeah, so this, this whole was a segue to that. All <laughs> yes. right. Now we're getting to the meat of the episode. Go on. Um, if, I, if I ever was on a dating site, I would begin with that sentence. Um, so, um, so there's a guy, he wrote a wonderful book called Everybody Lies. Yeah. And, um, and a lot of it was based, was you know, going through different uh, big data. And Pornhub, which is the, the world's biggest porn site, has released, Never heard of it. <laughs> that's right. There's porn on the internet, Mickey. Um, but uh, has released a lot of its data, and it is fascinating. But what do you make of the fact that there's so much? So a lot of what you find is expected. People search for what would presumably arouse them in the real world. Um, but there's a lot of weirdness. So one bit of weirdness, thing like tentacle porn, animated porn. Um, the incest, degree of incest-related searches, far, I think, outstrip real incestuous desires, I, I would argue. Um, and I think part of what goes on there is people in their desires, they explore strange shit in a safe environment. Um, you know, their appetites would normally go in this direction, but maybe because in part they're sated and everything, they go for some weird stuff. And maybe it's a stretch to view that as the same sort of assertion of autonomy. But um, but I think um, people want to walk on the wild side. Yeah, I will say this incest thing is like it's, it's fascinating to me as somebody who has like zero interest in it. And now you go on one of these sites and it's like all incest all the time. It's like you would think you would get the idea from if you just like sampled that that's like the number one thing that people are into in the U.S. It's just like, you know. They usually do like stepmom or stepsister to sort of right, and that's the right, kind of, which that's, is interesting. That's actually. the kind of light beer of incest. <laughs> that's the starter incest <laughs> to make it somewhat palatable. Yeah, no, that's actually fascinating. Uh, like, so you're you're obviously into the incest thing, at least in a watching porn videos context. But you know, you want the you want the story to be that they're not actually related. That's right. Genetically, that's right. That's a, that's kind of why not just own it. That's right. There's there's a magazine. I love the title of the magazine. It was back when there were porn magazines. It was called Barely Legal. <laughs> yeah, and, yeah, I remember. And, and, and you wonder, like, like, well, okay, it is legal, but just barely. And 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 so um, so I think it there's a transgressive desire, but but it stays within within bounds, and um, and maybe a lot of perverse tastes work that way. I mean, honestly, I can't explain tentacle porn or, or anime porn or cartoon porn. Um, but uh, I think part of it, I think the best explanation is that to some extent, you know, the Internet is a sort of safe space to explore various weird transgressive desires. And I think part of it is simply because it's transgressive. I think I think some of the bad things out there, revenge porn and all this stuff, and and um, you know stolen stolen videos and stolen photos from celebrities. Often, I think the audience is just people doing it because they know it's wrong. So there's a wonderful article in Journal of Philosophy by a philosopher named Sussman called "For Badness' Sake," and he subsumes a lot of this into perversity. So his perversity is anything where the normal desire is inverted. Instead of irrational, we go for irrational. So he subsumes in this things like, you know, sniffing at something that's gone bad or watching a movie just because it's so terrible or, um, or looking at beautiful icicles and wanting to smash them. And maybe, you know, clicking on, you know, watch the stepmother get it on with the step uncle is um is is um is falls under that category. Step uncle porn is pretty step, advanced. Step, step, I've step, never gone that far. It's, it's ne step uncle tentacle porn. <laughs> oh yeah. It's the same it's, it's the same drive that, that that leads, you know, some of us eat uh those jelly belly like earwax. Oh right, where some of them are terrible. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. yeah. Or just like poking at a sore tooth. Well, yep. like, why do you do that continually? Yep. Why don't yep. you just do it once and you're like, oh, that hurt. I'm going to stop. Yeah. And um, I think there's other explanations going on. I mean, I'm, I'm writing a book on on exactly that sort of thing. But part of it is is I think whenever we're, we're faced as psychologists, the question, why do people do this dumb shit or stupid or or evil or whatever? The answer, part of the answer is because it's dumb. 
and evil, etc. And um, and and like you know, I, I think this is true. If it's a seventeen-year-old, it's it's or, or a two-year-old, it's a particularly good candidate. I think, Mickey, you're right, though I don't have any data on this, which is if your life has gone to hell and not doing well, I think you're more likely to indulge in a, in a kind of second-order rational way. It could be if if what you think is, ira- is rational isn't working for you, maybe your notion of, irash- of rational is so bad you should try things that by your own light is irrational, the George Costanza principle. Right. I mean, yeah, you're right. Second-order ra- second rational makes total sense. Your life is shit. Do something else. Um, maybe it'll work. Maybe not. Yeah. So continuing with what's been a like recent theme on our show, which is I go on online dating apps and uh, extrapolate from them. Like one thing that I notice is like, there's this sameness of like what people are into and it's all great stuff. It's like, I like to eat healthy and I'm like super into going to the gym and I love to travel and it just gets fucking boring. Like I would, like if somebody were like, I love to fucking stuff my face with cheeseburgers and watch shitty TV, I'd be like, yes, into that. You know what I mean? Like it's just a breaking up the sameness of like everybody doing what they're supposed to. That's a good point. I mean, if, if you're, if you're, you're Brad Pitt or something, if you're, if you're, if you're a perfect five out of five, you're, you're doing fine and everything. But if you're like the rest of the other ninety nine percent, it's actually not a bad strategy to go perverse. Boy, they're full of advice here. Now, dating advice. Um, Lay it on us, Paul. Yeah, yeah. But but here's how it goes. I read an article on uh, by the guy who ran OKCupid, and he pointed out, say it's a scale from one to five, and everybody has, and he has tons of data on this. So the data for OKCupid dating is very – first thing, everybody is incredibly racist, and, and how they're racist is interesting, but everybody's really racist when it comes to, to, to dating partners. But the second thing which really struck me as interesting, I hadn't thought of this before, is that there are two types of threes. And it has to do with variance. So one type of three is someone who's average looking. Scale one to five, everybody says there are three. But the other type of three is the Yoel three. Is Thank you. No, 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 no. Bear, bear with me. Is, is somebody says, you know, somebody comes in and they have metal all over their face. And they say, I like to stuff my face with cheeseburgers and then go to beaches and then scream at babies. And and so, so and half the world says, "Oh my God, that's disgusting! It's terrible." Another half says, "That's the hottest person I could ever imagine." And so, so in some way, perversity can be a viable mating strategy. Um, like, and and again, Mickey's point holds. If if everything's going well for you, you have no reason to go perverse. But if you want, if if and in fact, in some way, and let's just get advice a little bit more. Consider graduate students choosing a research program. If you're the smartest person around and you're just chugging along, you're at a great university and so on. Well, then study, you know, implicit priming and cognitive neuroscience and and social effect of cognitive neuroscience and clinical social effect of cognitive neuroscience, and everything will go your way. But but if you're not, it is not a bad idea to study. You know, why do people like hentai porn or, or you know, or, you know, dance patterns and schizophrenics or what something intellectually different? Um, I'm sure some economists has come across made made this point before. But but if you're not at the top, one way to do one one reasonable strategy is to go weird. Paul, was there anything else that we you wanted us to talk about that we have not gotten? I, we talked about things I didn't want to talk about <laughs> in the first place. I kind of no, no. I think we've exhausted. I, I think we could call it a success in that. Case. The advice show. Yeah, that's right. Terrible advice. <laughs>